Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Praise you, God. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Praise you, Jesus. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, for this group of people coming here to learn more about your word, to grow in our knowledge and our love of you and relationship with you, Lord. And so we pray, Lord, with open hands and ears that are ready and open to receive whatever you have in store, open hearts, that you would speak to us tonight, Lord. We pray that the scriptures would come alive for us, challenge and convict us, comfort us in the ways that we are doubting or worried, direct us in the ways that we are seeking guidance and counsel. And we pray especially, Lord, that you would remove from our minds and hearts any distractions, anything seeking to take our attention or our energy away from this time, any influence or attack of the enemy. We ask that those things be cast out in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would make us present here, ready to receive whatever you have in store. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. We lay this time at your feet. We ask that you speak to us and that your will be done. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on in. Welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. We are going to be uh, reading this gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the Solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. It is the last Sunday in the liturgical year, so the following Sunday is like Catholic New Year. Uh, and so we are beginning a new cycle of readings. Uh, we've been predominantly in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, starting next week, we'll be predominantly in the Gospel of Mark, though Advent, kind of, we, we trickle through different Gospels. But once we're in the year, we'll be looking mostly at the Gospel of Mark. But tonight we are in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, the judgment of nations. As I've been saying, this is in the uh, last discourse of Jesus, the eschatological discourse, which is all about the end times, final judgment, those types of events. And so uh, this is the final parable of four parables that he gives to his disciples in the Mount of Olives, revealing to them and explaining to them the mysteries of how the second coming and the final judgment are going to take place. Each of those parables has had a particular lesson. Uh, the first parable of the, the faithful and unfaithful servant was about obeying the teachings of your master. Uh, and then we had the parable of the ten virgins about working faithfully and being prepared last week. We had uh, the parable of the talents, which is about being a good steward. And now we have this parable or this story of the judgment of the nations about works and works of mercy. So we're going to read this twice through. First time through, just get a picture for what's being said. Okay. Last parable in this discourse, Jesus is with his disciples on the Mount of Olives in the midst of Holy Week, right uh, soon before he is going to be handed over. Uh, this is right before the Last Supper um, and his final days before he is crucified. Matthew 25, 31. 
When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit upon His glorious throne, and all the nations will be assembled before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me. Ill, and you cared for me. In prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them in reply, Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. A stranger, and you gave me no welcome. Naked, and you gave me no clothing. Ill and in prison, and you did not care for me. Then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or naked, or ill, or in prison, and not minister to your needs. He will answer them, Amen, I say to you, what you did not do for one of these least ones, you did not do for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> So pretty straightforward, one that we have heard many times before. Uh, as we read this a second time, as I always encourage you, listen for any particular word or phrase that stands out to you specifically. Now you have a sense for what's happening in the passage. Now just try and disconnect from that for a moment and focus on how is Jesus speaking to you personally and specifically through this parable. Listen for the words, the phrases, the details that resonate with you. They spark a memory, a thought, they connect with something going on in your own life. Begin to bring those to prayer. Why is this standing out to me? Why is the Holy Spirit causing me to pay particular attention to this and reflect on those? Our second and final time through Matthew 25, starting again in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne and all the nations will be assembled before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me ill and you cared for me, in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will say to them in reply, Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of these least brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. A stranger, and you gave me no welcome. Naked, and you gave me no clothing. Ill and in prison, and you did not care for me. Then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or ill, or in prison, and not minister to your needs? He will answer them, Amen, I say to you, what you did not do for these one of these least ones, you did not do for me. And these will go off to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So take about the next few moments to reflect back uh, over those things that stood out to you. If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what those things are and any questions that you have. But for those of us here, we'll take about the next 10 minutes or so to reflect with those at your table. What stood out to you and why? And what questions do you have about this reading? And then we'll bring it back to the larger group um, for a little bit of teaching and then some Q&A. So take about the next 10 minutes. Uh, what I'd like to offer first is uh, some Old Testament um, kind of uh, context to help inform this passage, and then we'll kind of see what stood out to you from the passage itself. So I'm not, I'm not going to go too much into the details of this passage first and foremost, but kind of help you understand how this maybe was received based on the existing Hebrew scriptures. What I will say about this passage is that Jesus is speaking definitively here about the final judgment, okay? And so that is what is going to happen when he comes back eventually, the events of the final judgment. Whereas last week's parable might be more uh, akin to like the particular judgment where we all face Jesus to see like the weighing of our different, uh, you know, actions, the things that we've done, the things that we failed to do. That happens at the moment of our death. But when Jesus returns, uh, there will be a final judgment. And that's very much comes from, from this particular passage. Now, the language in this passage, um, there's a lot of it um, that, that is kind of alluded to or foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And one of these is the title Son of Man. I talked about this uh, many times before, that the, the term the Son of Man is Jesus's preferred term for himself. Okay, people often call him the Messiah, the Son of God. He doesn't deny those titles, but often when he's speaking about himself, he calls himself the Son of Man. Particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, it's used over 25 times because it's a very clear Jewish prophetic image. And because Matthew was written by a Jewish author to a Jewish audience, he would invoke that more so than the rest of the authors. This comes predominantly from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And the prophet Daniel, parts of it have some of this more apocalyptic literature type of style. And Daniel has this vision. He says, I saw coming with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. When he reached the ancient of days, this is one who is on his throne, God, and was presented before him, he received dominion, splendor, and kingship. All nations, peoples, and tongues will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship, one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so this is the image. It wasn't, they already had this kind of opening up to the idea of a Trinitarian God, because the Ancient of Days is kind of the God, God the Father, God of the Old Testament. But this figure, the Son of Man, was this apocalyptic figure that was going to come on the clouds with the angels to fulfill 
all the promises uh, that God had, had given uh, to bring about the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus invokes that very specific language when he's talking about himself. And it says here in the very first line of this parable, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all his angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. So just as the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man dominion and power in the prophecy, Jesus is using that exact same language. It would have been very clear to any Jewish person listening to Jesus or reading this later on what he was trying to do. And in fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that exact same phrasing is in the translation of Deuteronomy 33. In verse 2, it says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on his people from Sair and shone forth from Mount Paran. With him were myriads of holy ones. At his right hand advanced the gods. And so there's this kind of heavenly host, that same language, it's the exact same phrase in Greek, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, talking about the God of Moses, God the Father, that Jesus is invoking here about himself. So there are many direct places, like in the Gospel of John, where it says, the Father and I are one. And you do not know the Father unless you do not, and if, if you do not know me, then you do not know the Father. And so he's, he's very clear and literal about his divinity and that he is God, that he is the Son of God. But there's also these nuanced Jewish symbols as well that evoke that same truth, that Jesus is claiming to be this divine figure in the Jewish Old Testament uh, writings and prophecies. He is seeking to fulfill all of those different things. Okay, so that shows up in the, gospel, or in the, the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, uh, and, and a couple other places in Ezekiel as well. This image of the sheeps and the goats also shows up in Ezekiel, very uh, literally in Ezekiel 34, verse 17. Ezekiel is prophesying about God, and he says, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. That same language invo evoked by the prophet Ezekiel about how God himself is going to come in judgment. Okay, so again, another image that Jesus is standing in the place of God in these Old Testament prophecies that he's seeking to fulfill. He's intentionally using the exact same language and images. And then he speaks of these works of mercy. We call these things in our Catholic tradition the corporal works of mercy because they deal with the corpus, the body, the bodily needs of others uh, whom we're called to serve. There's also seven spiritual works of mercy ways in which we're called to minister to the spirit of others, things like admonish the sinner, counsel the doubtful, instruct the ignorant, pray for the living and the dead, bear wrongs patiently, forgive offenses willingly, counsel the sorrowful. Um, these seven corporal works of mercy, uh, there's six of them listed here, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, care for the sick, visit the imprisoned, and the seventh one is to bury the dead. And that comes from Tobit, the book of Tobit. And if you've read the book of Tobit, really great story. You can read it in one sitting. And chapter one of Tobit, um, there is uh, talking about the figure um, Tobiah, I think is to uh, Tobiah, yeah, Tobit's father, about how he was a noble man and they were killing all of these Jewish people, people from his, his heritage. And so he would sneak these bodies that were thrown over the wall and give them a proper burial. And anytime you would touch anything dead, you were unclean. So he'd spend the night outside of the camp, he'd ritually wash himself, and he would do this just because it was the right thing to do. So these kind of images in the Old Testament, they're very prevalent. This, what, what is being evoked here, this type of service is nothing new. It's nothing new. In the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, leave the edges of your field unharvested so those who are poor can find some food. That's Leviticus 19. 
in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, make sure you pay wages daily so those who are dependent on their daily bread have the ability to go and buy it. In Exodus chapter 22, do not take advantage of widows or orphans. In Amos, the prophet, chapter 4, do not denounce or, or denounces the oppression of the poor. And then very explicitly in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 7, Isaiah is talking about uh, what, is that, what is it that makes a, a wise, just, or righteous person? And he says this, Is it not sharing your bread with the hungry, bringing the afflicted and the homeless into your house, clothing the naked when you see them, and not turning your back on your own flesh? So this was nothing new. This is something that the prophets evoked. This was what was meant by the law, what it meant to be faithful to the covenant that God gave in the Torah, in the law of Moses. This is what it meant to be faithful to God. So Jesus here is not speaking anything new. It's the way in which he delivers it and that it brings a certain kind of judgment that is surprising. Because for the Jewish people, it, was, it had become over time, over generations, no longer we are a people who does the right thing because we are a people of God. And it shifted into we are right and just as a people because God gave us the law and we follow the law. And there's a distinction there. There's a nuance there. That it became more about legalism and following the law than serving others. They'd lost sight that it was part and parcel of who they were called to be by God, by, as his chosen people. It was part and parcel of that to do these good works, to provide for the needs of others. It wasn't legalism. It wasn't so that you would get some benefit. And so the Jews at this time believed they were going to be first in line for salvation because they're the chosen people of God. Simply because they are children of Abraham, children of the covenant, children of God's promise, they were going to be shoe-ins for eternal life. That was the prevailing thought. And so when Jesus comes and he says, we're separating the left from the, the right, the sheep from the goats, the Jewish people are listening you know, he's speaking to the disciples, but as they're reading this later, elders, leaders, Pharisees, they're reading this and they're probably saying, okay, all right, we're going to get our reward. We're going to get our reward for who we are. And then it starts talking about, did you feed the hungry? Did you give drink to the thirsty? And the elder might say, well, yeah, we do this. This is part of the law because this is who we are. But notice the first people, they didn't even recognize that they had been doing this. They have to ask the king, when did we do this for you? We're not going around acting like we're earning our way into heaven, expecting a reward. This is just part of what we did. We, it didn't even occur to us that we were doing this for you. And those who failed to do it, they didn't even recognize the least of these in their midst. And so this would have been very shocking for those Jewish listeners, especially those among the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, when they would read this later, when this type of teaching was um, communicated to them later, because remember, Jesus is just speaking to the disciples here. But this would have been very shocking for them because they felt they were entitled by their cultural and religious heritage as children of Abraham to have eternal life, to be the fulfillment of the promises that God gave them. And that had turned into a neglect to remember that this came with being faithful to the law, keeping our end of the bargain. God is always faithful to his promises, but we need to be faithful to the promises that we made, that they made, when that covenant was received. Because at the end of Deuteronomy, when Moses reinstates the covenant, he reminds them of the laws that they've been given. There's a series of blessings that are pronounced for those who profess and uphold the covenant. And then there's a series of curses 
for those who do not. And that was something that had been forgotten. It was just kind of a sense of, well, I show up, I'm here every week, I have a job, I'm a Eucharistic minister, I'm going to heaven, right? It was that kind of mentality. It's not just because of what you do and going through the motions and checking the boxes. It's about whether or not you are living the heart of the law in service to your neighbor out of love of God, not out of love of self to preserve yourself and get yourself a ticket into heaven, but because it's just part and parcel of the faith that you have in the Lord. Father Patrick says this all the time to us as a staff, and I'm one to agree with him, is that we have so many great ministries here and so many things that we do, but we wouldn't need any of it if we were all just in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if we were all in a relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what? All those things would happen naturally. We wouldn't have to coordinate them and organize them and convince people to join them. It would just be part of who we were. And so that's the thing that we try and do day in and day out here especially ever since he's got here, is to really hit home personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when that is done well, when it's done right, it flows outward and all of the other things happen naturally. That is what people hearing this have forgotten. And we can forget that too, just as easily. So I have a lot of other things I could say, but I think I want to leave it there at the moment. What are some things that stood out to you in this passage? What are some questions that you have about it? Yeah, Daniel. Why are uh, goats associated with uh, Satan? Yes, so um, a couple reasons, I think. So first, uh, sheep and goats, they, uh, at this time, they were, they were herded together. They grazed together. Um, only, you know, to the lay, the lay person, you might not even be able to tell the difference among some species of sheep and goats. They could, be, they could look very similar. They're equally valued in terms of they're mature. They're both usable for sacrifice. They're both usable for meat. In fact, goat is the most eaten protein in, on the planet. I don't know if you knew that. Um, yeah, it's the most eaten meat in the entire world. Um, so it shows you how privileged we are that we don't eat goat here, that we have access to all these other types of protein. But that's, that's not the case in many other parts of the world. Um, they can look very similar. They're both used for sacrifice, as I said. They're equally valued. The difference is that they're different species. So what Jesus is pointing out here is this is a difference in like inherent nature, that you can do a lot of the same things. You can look the same as the people around you. But unless you are inherently different, say, by virtue of your baptism, that something has changed in you, that puts you in a different category. So there's a difference between, oh, I'm just a nice person that does nice things. That cannot automatically cause us to expect that, like, all right, well, that means I'm going to heaven. Because Jesus himself says, like, the way is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want eternal life, you have to be born again from water and the Spirit, as he says in Nicodemus in John chapter 3, through baptism. It's the, the dominant way, the normative way. Of course, there are other ways that God can save people, it says in the Catechism, but that's the normative way that Jesus set up through the sacrament of baptism. So it's a difference kind of in species, that when you are baptized, you, you essentially become a different spiritual species. And that is what puts us on that path of salvation. Not just going through the motions, not checking the boxes, it's because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and instituting the sacrament so that we could claim that salvation for ourselves, claim the grace that he merited for us. We can't earn it. This should not be interpreted in such a way that if I do good works, I will go to heaven. No, that's actually a heresy called Pelagianism. You cannot earn your way into heaven. Okay, the real theological interpretation of this is if you have faith 
then you will do the works of a person who has faith. Because as it says in James, faith without works is dead. And so if you aren't doing the works, you don't have real faith. And so you cannot earn your way into heaven, but you will be judged according to your works, whether or not they measure up to the faith that you said that you professed and claimed over yourself by virtue of your baptism. And so that's a distinction, first and foremost, of goats and sheep. The second is there are actually a lot of words for goats in the Bible. I learned this this week. I didn't know this. Um, there's katiki, which just means a male goat. There's tragos, uh, which means a he-goat. He uh, there's yael, which is a wild mountain goat. Um, it's actually a parallel for an Old Testament name of a judge, Jael, one of the, or not a judge, uh, a female warrior. I don't know if you know this story, but when Deborah was a judge in the book of Judges, the only female judge in the Old Testament, uh, they were at war with, I think, the general Sisera, and he was in hiding in this woman's tent, and her name was Jael. And she tricked him, and while he was sleeping, she drove a tent peg through the side of his skull and killed him. She's like one of the coolest women in the Old Testament. My wife, my, my mom, my mom loves stories of women kicking butt, so she would love the story of Jael. And we were thinking of naming a daughter Jael, because we have a, 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 a kind of trend of Old Testament first names for our children. Uh, but we're also big on the meaning, and Jael means wild mountain goat, so that was out the window. So not naming our kid wild mountain goat. Beautiful name. Uh, we're big on the meaning. So, so there's a lot to name for goats. The, the weird word for this, uh, for this type of goat, um, where do I have it written, is eriphos. It's the only place in the New Testament this word is used. And it's a kid, a young goat, an unmatured goat. And so in that sense, it also indicates that this person is not yet mature in the way that they're living out their faith. It doesn't mean that they're young physically. But it means that their faith hasn't really blossomed into what it is supposed to be, meaning a faith that bears fruit in works, because faith without works is dead. And so the word specifically used for goat is to indicate those that are professing faith, but they're not living as if they have that faith. And then the last image is one that I alluded to yesterday. If you were at Catholicism 101, uh, I talked about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And one of the practices on the Day of Atonement was you would take two goats and one you would sacrifice as a purification offering to purify the inner holiest sanctum of the temple where it, believed, it was believed that the presence of God dwelled. But the other goat, which became known as the scapegoat, where we get that term from, the high priest would lay his hands upon and announce and proclaim the sins of himself and all of the people over this goat, conferring all of the sinfulness of the people onto this goat, and the goat would be led out into the wilderness as if the sins were now fleeing from the community and they were free. So that's partly also probably because of the, how the reason, that's partly the reason why the goat may be an image for sin or sinfulness because of sacrificial instances like the Day of Atonement. So um, yeah, but I learned a lot of words for goats. Who knew I would ever need to know that? So other questions, things that stood out to you? Yeah, Lynn. Well, this we were talking at our table about what is the best way to approach somebody that you think needs something without hurting their feelings and making them, you know, feel bad about their circumstances. Is there some, do you have any tips for how to do that? Yeah. Um, treat them like a person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hi, what's your name? Do you need anything? Just like that. Yeah. 
Just, you know, like, hi, how are you? There's so, I've talked about this before. So often we are accustomed to avoiding acknowledging or, or avoiding eye contact because of the awkwardness that we feel. Do I help this person? Especially maybe if they're uh, a third of the homeless people on average, uh, the people who are homeless or unhoused are, are, are unhoused or homeless because they're mentally ill. And so they might be creating some kind of a scene. We don't really know how to act. We feel socially awkward about the situation. We don't know if we want to get involved. And so that alone can accustom us when we're dealing with the homeless or unhoused as an entire population to just neglect or not make eye contact or not engage. Um, and I think remembering that they're people, that they need eye contact, they need people to acknowledge them. So even if you have nothing in your car and they're on the side of the road, roll down your window and say, hi, I'm sorry, I don't have anything to give you, but God bless you. You know, what's your name? I'll pray for you. You know, just a small exchange so they know like, wow, someone sees me. Like I am a person. I mean, imagine living most of your life constantly being driven by, walked by, by people who refuse to acknowledge your existence. I mean, if you weren't struggling with mental illness before that, you probably very likely would for after a while of that experience. So I think just the simple action of acknowledging them as a human being and talking to them like you would anybody else. You know, if you go outside your, your home or your apartment, your townhome, and the, your neighbor is outside their door just like dropping stuff or they look like they're unkempt or they're really struggling or they're sad, you would just say, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Can I help you? These people are not maybe your physical neighbors, but they are your spiritual neighbors. So treat them the exact same way. Yeah. So you can, you can get into the, you know, do we get them food? Do we get them gift cards? Do we get them money? What are they going to do with the money? Just, I think above all, treat them like people. You know, and then, you know, what do you need? And you can usually tell from the context of the conversation if the need is appropriate, if it's healthy or appropriate for you to do that, if you can offer an alternative. You're not forced to accommodate anything they ask for. Um, but, you know, it does help. And, and acknowledging them as a human being is something that I think they don't know to ask for, but they need probably more than anything else that they would ask for. Excellent. Yeah. We also have, uh, they're not up right now because we're re redoing our bathrooms. I think we have some over there actually in the, the, the pamphlet racks. Um, there's a pamphlet over there called Community Resources. It's usually in the bathrooms as well. Um, and it has in there all the local resources, phone numbers and addresses to local homeless shelters, food pantries, resources for the homeless and unhoused, stuff like that. And then uh, on one of those other pamphlets, there's mental health resources as well. And I keep a few of those in my car just at all times. Just so if I ever run into anyone, I have some maybe in my Bible. That way, if I don't have you know, a few dollars or a gift card or food or I'm, I'm rushing, um, I can at least engage with them as a human being and say, you know, if you need anything, uh, you know, any resources, here's some great things locally that can help you. Yeah. So grab one of those before you leave. Yeah. Yeah, great. What stood out to me was the contrast between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Mm -hmm. He came as a mild baby first time and the second time. He's coming on power. Yeah. With the angels and the glorious throne. The mm -hmm. second thing was, all those things that are pointed out in this particular gospel is something that every one of us can do. We don't have to be rich. We don't have to be talented. We don't have to have special ability. Mm -hmm. We can do it all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, that's a trap we can fall into, as I've talked about before. I think I talked about last week, the trap of comparison. Like, I can't be holy or make a difference or be a saint unless I have these gifts, unless I do these particular things, unless I know the Bible really well, unless I can recite the catechism like the back of my hand. And Jesus here is saying, like, you know, there's not going to be a catechism test at your judgment. You know, like St. John of the Cross, he said, at, at the dawn of our life, we'll, or at the dusk of our life, we'll be judged on love alone. How did you love? 
Did you give food to the hungry? Did you give drink to the thirsty? You know, he's not going to be like, what was your favorite Bible verse? You know, what Bible verses do you have memorized? Like, he's not going to, I mean, he already knows, but that's, that's not what matters. You know, the stuff that I do up here matters so much far less than what they do at the food pantry every Monday and Wednesday. And what St. Vincent de Paul does to help people uh, with rental assistance and utilities and people who are struggling financially and being the hands and feet of Christ to other people. That is really what is going to come up in that conversation. That's how we'll be judged. Yes? So someone who's an atheist, yes. like doing the portraits, mm-hmm. how will they be judged? How will they be judged? Yeah. Any person will be judged according to the level of truth that has been revealed to them and how they responded to it. So if there's a person on the other side of the planet who has never heard the gospel, never heard the name Jesus before, there is a certain level of natural morality that is present to all of us. We inherently know not to kill, not to steal, to be kind to our neighbor. We inherently know that. They will be judged according to that natural moral law. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to a person, whether or not they accept or reject it, based on the quality, again, of how that was proclaimed, if it wasn't proclaimed well, that's going to be taken into account. But if it was proclaimed to them and they accept it, then they're going to be judged according to what was proclaimed to them. If they reject it, they're going to be judged according to that rejection. So it's based on, God knows what's been revealed to us. He knows the truth that's been revealed. He, he knows how we've responded to it. But someone who has a doctorate in sacred theology is going to be judged a whole lot differently than someone from a tribal uh, community on the other side of the planet who's never even heard of the name of Jesus because they have different levels of truth that's been revealed to them. But we all have that base level of natural morality. Every, every culture in existence in history has built itself on those primal uh, laws of morality. Do not kill, do not steal, you know, those fundamental things. There's been slight, small variations, but at least one of those things has been prevalent in every society in human history. We know it. And so that is the baseline. So it's a, it's a great responsibility to know Jesus, you know? That's why I always point out in James chapter 3, he says, uh, not many of you should be teachers because you will be judged more harshly. You know, the, the more information that we have, the more responsibility we have to convey that information to others, the more responsibility that we will be held accountable for at our judgment. So it's the degree of truth that you knew or that was revealed to you at the time of your death. How did you respond to that? So, for instance, the... Um, the good thief on the cross, St. Dismas, right? I use this example all the time. Um, he says, uh, uh, have mercy on me, and, or something to that effect. And Jesus says, um, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, go register at your local synagogue after you get down from here. Uh, do some works of mercy. Go to synagogue school. Learn the Torah. Like, he doesn't say any of that. It's the level of faith that he had in that moment. He displayed enough for Jesus to be able to say, today you will be with me in paradise. Other questions, comments, things that stood out to you? Good, because I have a lot of notes here. So um, <laughs> let's see what else here. Uh, one thing that we haven't talked about, or that hasn't been brought up, Who are these least brothers? Who are the people who we are called to serve? Because there are actually three different interpretations of who these brothers are. The first is what we might commonly interpret, anyone in need. 
anyone in need, we say, these are the least brothers of mine. Okay? But it was actually not the common interpretation at the time this was written. The common interpretation at the time this was written was that the brothers that he is speaking of are those who are in service to the Son of Man, those who are in service to the King, Christians, Christian missionaries. This was an understanding. You may have heard this, this passage, um, you know, where, uh, oh my gosh, where is it? Um, the small acts done to the, the, the Christian missionaries, uh, the one who gives you even a small cup of cold water. Now, if you know if you know this verse, I'm not quoting it well, but um, these are the things that were expected. It was it was the Hebrew uh, cultural expectation of something called shalia, which is kind of a holy, sacred hospitality for the other. It was expected that you were to behave in such a way that you were expecting to encounter Christ in the stranger, and so you were to administer hospitality to anyone you encountered. Anyone you encountered, that was the understanding. Now, there were some cultural and, and, division, and cultural and religious divisions over time that made that difficult, like the Jews and the Samaritans at this time obviously weren't being super hospitable to one another. But that was the understanding of what shalia was in, in Jewish culture, was that you would extend that hospitality. And so those who are the Christian missionaries at this time, they were, they were acting as if they were the stewards of the king. Jesus is the king, and, and if you were to receive a steward into your town or into your community, Part of the principles of shalia, of hospitality, was you were to treat that steward as if they were the king themselves. And so, Jesus is saying here, a way to interpret this is how are you supporting those who are seeking to evangelize? How are you supporting the evangelical work of the church? Are you offering help to those who are going off and being missionaries? Are you offering your assistance to those? And this could even be further condensed down, not to just any Christian in need, but specifically to those Christians proclaiming the gospel. And so you can interpret it any of those three ways. But in the early church when this was written, the more common understanding and interpretation was a more focused, those who were particularly at the service of spreading the good news because of this concept of shalia that was very much prevalent not only in the Jewish culture, but then was absorbed by the early Christian church. That if you are not part of helping spread the gospel, providing for the needs of those who are sacrificing to go bring Jesus to people, then there's an issue with that. Now, we should very well extend that to all of our neighbors. You know, that it's, uh, I've heard it said recently, uh, who is my neighbor? Uh, the person in front of you with a need. The person that God places in front of you with a need, that's your neighbor. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter their religious background, their context, if you know them or not, that's your neighbor. Okay, so we have one context at the time it was written, but we also have ways that we can interpret this that are coherent with the Torah. Love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't something that Jesus proclaimed. That's in Leviticus 19. And he reiterated it as one of the most important commandments, the second most important commandment after love God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your whole strength. And so no matter how we interpret it, we are called to that recognition of serving those. But I think the important thing about bringing that up is that when we think about service and corporal works of mercy, it's easier first to think about like, okay, who in general is in need? But then we might neglect to think about how can I specifically support the efforts of the church to evangelize? How can I specifically support the efforts of the church to go proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? Because you can give bread to someone and they won't be hungry for a day. Or you can proclaim a word that will save their soul for all eternity. And if you have to weigh those two things, I think Jesus like, is a little bit 
weighs a little bit more than the bread. Not that the bread's not important, but we can easily neglect the weight of that because we might just look only to, okay, I'm going to go to a soup kitchen, I'm going to give We should do all of that stuff. Absolutely, it's important. And people aren't really able to take, if you know of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, people aren't really even to have an awareness, able to have an awareness of their spiritual needs if their physical needs are not provided. If they don't have food, water, shelter, security, like those are their main primary needs. So we need to be attentive to those. But we cannot then stop there. We cannot neglect the evangelical efforts of the church, of which we are part by virtue of our baptism. Every time you go to Mass, you are sent out. One of my uh, favorite uh, churches up in the mountain where I grew up was an evangelical church um, called Church of the Woods. Uh, really funny story about this church. It has nothing to do with the story I'm about to tell. But uh, Church of the Woods, they started doing ministry in prisons. And they started doing ministry in prisons, particularly in the African-American wards in prisons. And they didn't know that uh, at the time, slang uh, for a white person was a wood. And so they were going in, we're from Church of the Woods, which to them was like, we're from Church of the White People. And they were like, we want nothing to do with you. It was very, very funny. It took a while for them to kind of get some rapport with the, the inmates there. But anyways, a great thing about Church of the Woods, and this, this, I've seen this now at other churches since, Catholic and, and Protestant, is that when you drive in, there's a big sign that says, welcome to Church of the Woods. But as you're leaving, on the back of that sign, it says, you are now entering the mission field. So every time you leave, you're being reminded that your baptismal call is to go be sent out so that more people are here the next Sunday. That yes, we need to serve the physical needs of our brothers and sisters, but our primary effort that we need to get to is proclaiming the good news. Because there are many people who are physically starving, but there are far more people who are spiritually starving. And the devil wants us to stop at the physical and fall into legalism and feel like, well, I've checked the boxes. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm a good person. I'm going to get to heaven. Because that's far less threatening to the enemy than saving the souls of the people who are totally in destruction or on a path that's leading them where the goats go. We can be the ones who help those efforts. So who are those brothers in your life? When you think of it that way, it becomes a little closer, doesn't it? Because when we think about the corporal works of mercy, we think like, okay, I'm going to go help the homeless out there, the unhoused out there. Often we don't know their names, but we'll go find them. The thirsty. Maybe you know some people who are sick or in prison to go write them, to visit them, to care for them. But when it's the people who are not spiritually fed, well, then all of a sudden that's my parents, my children, my grandchildren, my brothers, my sisters, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my coworkers. And that gets a lot more in our face. At the dusk of your life, you will be judged on love alone. And what does it mean to really love someone, to give them food for a day, or to go out of your comfort zone to proclaim to them the good news that might save their soul for all of eternity? That's sacrificial love. It's easy to go buy food. It's easy to give $5. It's hard to proclaim the truth, especially in this culture, to proclaim the gospel. To do it consistently in a way that will change people's lives and inspire them. I'm not saying don't do the other stuff. These are in tandem. Don't misinterpret me. Go do the, the corporal works of mercy. But that's why there are also seven spiritual works and why both are needed. So who are those least brothers in your life? Who are those people that God might be compelling you? Time and time again, the names that keep coming up, whenever we have Bible studies like this, I've asked this question in many different forms many times over the past several months, 
And those names might keep coming. And maybe tonight it's a new name, or maybe it's that one person that you've been neglecting having that conversation with. And guess what? This Thursday, opportunity around a table to all those people who press your buttons and frustrate you to have those conversations, to finally maybe say that word of encouragement that might get them to listen and pay attention. God is placing the opportunity before you. Are you going to take it? Are you going to see that name in the coming week? Do you have a game plan for how to serve them? Not just their physical needs, but the needs of their soul. That is what in the end will lead to our judgment. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? It's not just what we did, but what we failed to do. James chapter 4, verse 17. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, it is a sin. If you want to get woken up, read the book of James. That'll just wreck your life, I'm telling you. It is like one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. So over this week, read the book of James. See who it inspires you to think about, how it inspires you to act. But recognize it's not just about what we do to check the box. We are also going to have to lay an account for what we knew was right, but what we failed to do. Not just in the simple corporal works of mercy, but those spiritual needs of the people God has placed directly in our path, in our families, our friendships, our workplaces, and our communities. Sometimes it's easier to think about the people suffering on the other side of the planet because we can just send them money over there. It's hard to open our eyes to the need that's right in front of us and be the person who serves it. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this night, for the gift of this study. As we pray, I'm calling to mind the efforts uh, in the early parts of this last century of Peter Moran and Dorothy Day in putting together the Catholic Worker Movement, and a particular quote by Peter Moran where he says, we should turn this nation of go-getters into a nation of go-givers. I pray, Lord, that you would make us go-givers, to be willing to lay down our comfort, lay down our lives, lay down the things that we have attachments to, to meet the needs of others, their physical needs, yes, but their spiritual needs especially, because their physical needs at the moment of their death will matter nothing. Their spiritual needs will become absolutely paramount in that moment. So help us to know who to serve and how to serve them, to do it with charity and patience, especially those that we encounter this week among our friends and family, to be charitable, to listen, to have compassion, to understand, and to recognize the humanity in each person that we see, that everyone is our neighbor in one respect or another. And so we pray, God, you give us the grace, the words, the strength, and the patience to serve them and serve them well. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. Bless our family and friends as we gather together for Thanksgiving. Bless all those who this time of year is very difficult for because of loss or pain or grief or broken families. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring comfort, healing, and restoration and joyful community to those people. Pray for all those who need healing in our community and in our families, those who are sick or those who are seriously ill that you and your miraculous healing and mighty hands would come upon them. And we pray, Lord, for all the ways that the enemy is at work, especially as we're reminded this coming Sunday, the feast, the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, 
about the battle that is waging in our universe between good and evil and in each one of our souls. And so we pray, Lord, that you would rebuke and cast out through the intercession of our guardian angels, the Blessed Mother, St. Joseph and St. Michael, all of the work of the evil one and his demons in our lives and in our world. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.